This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beach on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, PNG signs a security deal with the United States, but without details of the pact, there's concern about what it means for the country. We are deeply invested in the Indo-Pacific because our planet's future is being ridden here. And we head to Saipan, where residents are preparing for Typhoon Mawa. And parades and celebrations as Tongan Samoan fan favourite Ian's Tongi was crowned the 2023 American Idol. Everybody was just bringing out their banners, their Tongan flags, their Kohoku flags, parading down the road, honking their horns in support of Ian. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. We start in Papua New Guinea, which has opened the door to an expanded U.S. military presence as the two countries sign a defense agreement in Port Moresby. The government has come under fire for not yet making the final text of the agreement public, but Prime Minister James Marape says the pact will help the country become a robust economy. It comes as PNG hosts leaders from around the region and further abroad, including India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi. PNG correspondent Tim Swanston reports from Port Moresby. A diplomatic doubleheader. The Indian Prime Minister and US Secretary of State holding court in Port Moresby as both nations move to entrench and expand their ties to the Pacific. India sees common ground with the Pacific on climate change and wants developing countries to have a bigger say on the global stage. The Pacific sees New Delhi as a natural leader for emerging economies. We need a big third voice to be active for the small island nations at G20, at G7. And India is only too happy to oblige. During these difficult times, the old adage was proven true. A friend in need is a friend indeed. I'm glad that India, during these challenging times, stood by their Pacific Island friends. Modi's presence looks even more significant in the absence of US President Joe Biden, who cancelled his visit to PNG last week. But his last-minute replacement, Antony Blinken, has still chalked up a major win, signing a new defence pact that would open the door to an expanded US military presence here in PNG. We are deeply invested in the Indo-Pacific because our planet's future is being written here. Papua New Guinea is playing a critical role in shaping that future. The military deal has stoked protests in Port Moresby, while other countries across the region are watching carefully. We welcome US involvement in the Pacific. They are a Pacific nation. Uh, and it's a great thing to see. We can see that it's an extension of an existing relationship and it isn't just about uh, you know, military presence, it's also about you know, um, development. A diplomatic dance with deep consequences. That was Tim Swanston reporting there from Port Moresby. And as we just heard, the security treaty between PNG and the United States is not without controversy. Foreign Affairs reporter Stephen Jedgett says there are still unanswered questions about details of the pact until at least it is made public. Now, we will get to see it, at least within the next few months, because both the US and the PNG governments have said that they do intend to release it at some point in the near future, once it's gone through various parliamentary processes. So this will be a public document, 
that experts, civil society groups, the opposition in both countries will be able to go through with a fine-tooth comb to get a sense of what it is. But in the absence of that final text, all we can really go on are the assurances that both uh, Anthony Blinken and James Marape have said. Uh, now, what are those assurances? Well, the, James Marape, the Prime Minister of PNG, has said repeatedly that this text won't breach the constitution of Papua New Guinea. Uh, he's also said that there will be no immunity for US personnel who commit crimes in Papua New Guinea. Now, he said that because a, a leaked draft of the text seemed to point towards uh, some haggling between the US and PNG officials about a level of immunity uh, for, for US personnel. And he's also said that PNG will give any, will have to green light any move by the United States to actually uh, establish more military, uh, more of a military presence in PNG through PNG military facilities. Now, again, this is in response to that leaked draft text, which hasn't been verified yet, which seemed to point to the fact that the US was looking for pretty wide-ranging access to a, um, to a, to a number of facilities in PNG. So at this point, I, I think a couple of things are clear. One, there are going to be some brackets put around US, um, the US military presence in PNG, uh, some checks and balances which are going to be in the agreement. Um, uh, but two, and undeniably, this will potentially open the door to more American military personnel within the country. As mm. several people inside, the, inside PNG have said, you know, the US wouldn't be doing this if it didn't have a determination to try and actually embed itself more firmly within uh, Papua New Guinea. But as for the details, what is or isn't permitted, we'll simply have to wait and see until we actually get the final text, hopefully in coming weeks. And, you know, there's also some business opportunities, business in US business investment that has been held out. Uh, do you think this is going to stall in the Papua New Guinea parliament? Could there be objection to this pact? It's a good question, Beverly. At this stage, we don't know. The opposition has made it clear it has concerns about this agreement. It's said that uh, it believes that it could compromise PNG's independence and sovereignty, that it amounts to picking a side in the, in the great geopolitical contest that we're seeing at the moment in the Pacific between China on one side and Western nations, particularly the US and Australia on the other. Uh, we've also seen quite a number of protests uh, in Papua New Guinea, in particular at university campuses, where a number of students have also said that they they believe that this agreement might be fatal for, for Papua New Guinea's independence. Whether this gets ahead of steam or whether it dissipates in the coming days and weeks, we simply don't know. There does seem to be a level of political opposition in the country, but how serious and sustained that opposition will be. We, we, we just don't know at this point. And James Marape and his government seem determined to push this through. James Marape insists that this won't in any way compromise PNG's sovereignty, that Port Moresby will still have the ability to strike agreements, including military and economic agreements with other countries, including China, uh, and that nothing will be done without the specific and explicit green light of PNG's government. Um, so he seems to be arguing that this is basically a great shortcut for the Papua New Guinea army and defence forces more broadly to gain extra training opportunities, for more money to flow from the US to actually upgrade PNG defence facilities. There's a separate shipwriters agreement that will see US Coast Guard um, personnel and potentially vessels come into PNG waters to try and guard against illegal fishing 
uh, and potentially drug smuggling as well. So James Marape sees huge benefits here for the PNG without any loss of independence and sovereignty. And he, he seems intent on pushing this through. Narendra Modi, India's Prime Minister, is also there for the meetings um, ahead of his visit to Australia. What role does India want to play in this region? Yeah, it's difficult to say at this stage. I think we are definitely seeing some very clear signalling here from New Delhi. The fact that we've now had the third meeting between India and Pacific Island nations uh, is a pretty clear indication that uh, India is intent on trying to entrench its strategic, its development and its economic links, as well as its cultural links, which are quite strong with the Pacific. Uh, now, it is early days. I don't think we should overstate it compared to the other players in the Pacific and the traditional powers, uh, including, you know, Australia, New Zealand, the US, increasingly China, of course. Uh, India is still a relatively small player. Its aid outreach, for example, or its aid spending uh, is dwarfed by those of the traditional donors, let alone the, the multilateral institutions in the Pacific. Um, and in some senses, it's starting from a much lower base than those nations that have had many decades of experience working with and investing in the Pacific. But I do think that there is a bit of intent being shown here by India. It does seem to be signalling that it wants to be a bigger uh, and more influential player in the Pacific. Uh, and the response from James Marape, in particular, Prime Minister of, of PNG, today to Narendra Modi's uh, arrival in PNG in this meeting was really striking. Mr Marape said that he wanted India to emerge as a third voice or a third big voice on the global stage. Presumably that's the third after the US and China. Uh, and that India was a natural ally and champion for the Pacific Island region and its interests, whether that's on development finance or on climate change or just about giving the so-called global south a more prominent role and decision-making capability at the, the high table of international diplomacy. So I think that language, whatever it amounts to in the end, I don't think we know, but it was still striking to see Mr Marape embrace Mr Modi and India with such fervour and it might signal that there is some work there that India can do can, to, to really entrench its position in, in the South Pacific. That was foreign affairs reporter Stephen Judgett there speaking to the ABC's The World, Beverly O'Connor. It's that time on Pacific Beat where we find out what's making news around the region. And to do that, as always, we're joined by Kyle Evans. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Priyanka. Um, now, let's start in Timor-Leste. The um, election wrapped up on Sunday. I understand the votes uh, counting is, is drawing to an end. What are the updates, Kyle? Yeah, so 96% of votes have been counted. And uh, at the present, it looks like Shanana Guzmo of the CNRT party is in poll position. Uh, he's gained 31 seats, uh, just shy of the 33 needed for an outright majority. Uh, therefore, that party is expected to enter a coalition uh, with the Democratic Party, which has gained six seats of their own. Uh, so we, we expect there'll be an, an announcement from CNRT on this, possibly today. Uh, meanwhile, the incumbent ruling party, uh, Fretland, uh, they won 19 seats, uh, while their coalition partner, Kunto, won five seats and PLP won four. So little, still a little bit of a process to go. Um, these are just preliminary at this stage, but those results will now go through to a second round of verification in the coming days. 
Yes, yes, but I, um, it looks like, I guess, that we might be seeing a uh, coalition government, I guess, r- r- led, as you said, by Guzmao. Um, but do st- stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia for, for those updates. We'll be um, bringing them bringing them, t- them to you as, the, as they come in and um, as, as those results become a bit more firmed up. Um, now, Kyle, let's head to the Marshall Islands. We've been um, talking about that uh, trust fund, that contentious trust fund um, that was created to handle um, or to compensate victims of, of nuclear testing. Now, the Marshall Islands government itself has taken it over. Before I understand, it was it was it was sort of owned by by provincial governments, isn't that That's right? That's right. It was in the hands of the uh, of the local government, and it's a, it's a real interesting update. This one. So now, the actual government, the the federal government, if you like, has taken control over the bikini operation uh, and place the former manager uh, so that the, the local government in charge of it, which is the KBE local government, they've placed them into receivership. Mm. So this is reported by the Marianas Variety and, and comes after a week of public demonstrations by members uh, of that bikini community over the mismanagement of those compensation funds. Um, that sparked an emergency cabinet meeting uh, and a vote to take authority away from the mayor and the council of that local government uh, and into the hands of the Minister of Finance. So, and this all obviously follows those bombshell revelations uh, by the ABC, as well as the New York Times, that, uh, that that local government, the KBE Council, had burned through something like $70 million of that Bikini Trust Fund uh, in seven years, causing those regular payments to those victims to just be turned off. Yes, yes, indeed. And it's a lot of money to go through. And and. In fact, it's quite interesting to see that the Marshall Islands government has taken it over because I understand it was the U.S. government that was first sort of, um, you know, I guess authorizing the payments and looking after that trust fund. It was then sort of um, handed handed over to the local government to take care of that fund to see where it goes, and and that's where those um, allegations of mismanagement and and yeah, the, the loss of of millions of dollars allegedly of of that fund um, sort of rose. So let's hope the the federal the the national government can take better care of those funds. I mean, have they introduced, reintroduced the payments to the victims? Not that I could see, but uh, funny you should say say how before just on how how muddy the situation is. Um, ironically, um, I read that the Ministry of Finance, who's now going to be in control of this trust fund, mm. they actually had the most financial and accountability problems identified oh by Deloitte auditors uh, in the most recent audit. So I suppose that doesn't inspire a ton of confidence but uh, but hopefully uh, hopefully they've got got their you know got their affairs in order and and, uh, and they can do this yes yes and we did hear from some pretty irate folks who um, uh, received compensation from that trust fund um, and noticed it, the tap had I guess turned off and were asking where their money was um, and obviously there's good reason for that money to exist these are people uh, many of them whose um, you know generations before sometimes it's just their grandparents parents or parents um, were on bikini at all and had to be relocated when the nuclear testing there happened. And this fund was set up to sort of um, support them um, and compensate them for, for that difficulty of relocating and, and having your islands pretty much unlivable because of the radiation there. Um, so very important that that fund, I guess, gets to the people because it is created there for them. So let's hope that the Marshall Islands government can turn it around. Um, now to some sporting news, Kyle. The OFC Champions League um, is underway and the Vanuatu Champions defied odds to make the semi-finals. Is that right? Yeah, this is the great, uh, great story. The 
uh, the Ephira Blackbird. They should One be of your favourite? Oh, they should be called the Ephira Phoenix because they've, uh, they've risen from the ashes, <laughs> Priyanka. Um, but no, they're through to the, uh, the knockout stage after beating New Caledonia's Tiger Sport 1-0 in front of a uh, frantic home crowd of 6,000 people uh, over the weekend. It actually marked their first ever o- OFC Champions League win, given it's their first time in the tournament. They obviously had an early loss uh, and a draw and weren't tipped to advance. They had to rely on other results to go their way. Uh, and they did with PNG's Hakati uh, United losing to ASPRA. That meant they literally went from the bottom of uh, Group B uh, to second uh, to advance. Wow. So they'll now play defending champions Auckland City FC. Uh, they'll obviously be underdogs for that encounter, but hopefully some home crowd magic can, uh, can get them through. Yes, well, magic is certainly on their side if you if they got from the bottom to the second plot stop. Um, that's pretty impressive. So that's Group B. How did Group A um, shake out, Kyle? Yeah, so Suva FC beat the Solomon Warriors to take out that second semi-final spot. Auckland obviously finished on top. They'll now play the Tahitian champs, um, ASPRA, in the crossover. Uh, meanwhile, interestingly, Lupe Ole Soanga from Samoa, they've actually been referred to the OFC Disciplinary and Ethics really? Committee. Committee, yeah. They were actually unable to fill a, fill a team in their final group game uh, against Auckland. Do we know so. why? I'm not sure. I just yeah, saw it at the the bottom of an article, which yeah, it might be something worth checking out. Yes, yeah, and um, yeah, something that perhaps you can update us on next time because that is concerning. Um, but a lot of football news, uh, making a lot of football fans happy. I'm certainly um, ha- uh, excited for um, for Caltoc, the um, Vanuatu player you said was in the grand finals. <laughs> Um, uh, should be making a debut in, in a couple of weeks in the A-League here in Australia. So lots of sporting and football news, particularly soccer news, to keep people uh, happy. Uh, Kyle, thank you for the stories. Thank you, Priyanka. That was Kyle Evans bringing us the latest from around the region. Don't go anywhere. Soon we'll be heading to Saipan to find out the latest about a typhoon that's heading their way. And we'll also hear about that amazing American Idol win from Tongan Samoan. Ian Tongi will be speaking to his family coming up on the show just after this break. Inzane Rugby League on ABC Radio Australia. Hosted by ABC Sport commentator Zane Bojack. Inzane Rugby League is a weekly look at the lighter side of rugby league. Featuring game insights, latest news and interviews with rugby league legends and from around the edges. So close to the action, you can almost taste the turf. Inzane Rugby League. Tuesday nights at 6pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Your home of rugby league in the Pacific. You are listening to ABC Radio Australia. This show is called Pacific Beat. I'm your host, Priyanka Srinivasan. Category 3 typhoon is expected to hit the northern Pacific later today with warnings in place for Guam and parts of the northern Mariana Islands. Guam News Chief Regional Correspondent correspondent Thomas Magnolonia is on the ground in Saipan and joins us now on the line. Thomas, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's just started raining today and it's going to be a wet day before that typhoon uh, makes its approach. Yes, indeed. So is that the situation now? Are you feeling any strong winds as well as that rain, Thomas? And so right now, the latest conditions. So in the northern Marianas, Saipan and Tinian are under a tropical storm condition too. That means that 39 miles per hour or more winds are possible uh, in the next uh, day or so. And for the island of Rhoda, which is where most of the government in the Northern Marianas is focusing on because it is 
more to the south, closer to Guam. It's under a typhoon condition too, which means that uh, those damaging winds of uh, 39 miles per hour or more are possible also uh, very soon. And as you said, uh, much of the focus has also been on the island of Guam as the typhoon Mawar uh, tracks further south. The governor of Guam, uh, Lulian Guerrero, last night released a special address saying that they are expecting a Category 3 typhoon. That means winds of 96 to 110 miles per hour with gusts up to 125 miles per hour. And so what the situation is on the ground here for folks in the Northern Marianas and in Guam, yesterday, uh, shelters opened for Saipan, Tinian, and Rota residents. Mm. And this morning on Guam, shelters are expected to open at 8 a.m., which is just in an hour and a half. So we are expecting to see a lot more preparation today with the remaining hours uh, that we have and uh, emergency response is is in full force. Uh, and we also know that uh, the U.S. delegate for Guam in U.S. Congress has asked the Speaker of the House for assistance, for support. And in the Northern Marianas, Governor Arnold Palacios has requested to President Biden to issue a pre-landfall disaster declaration, which essentially expands the federal offices uh, support here in the Northern Marianas. Okay, so a lot of preparations underway, Thomas. And remind us, so it's expected in, in the next few hours, so around midday today, is that right? Uh, it's going to be uh, late, uh, Tuesday, late, later today, Tuesday, and peak conditions on Wednesday. That was the latest from the National Weather Service. Right now, just to give you an idea of exactly where this is uh, in uh, for us in the region, uh, it's about 245 miles southeast of Guam and about 315 miles south southeast of uh, Saipan. So we are uh, racing for that impact uh, late tonight and early into tomorrow. And of course, uh, lots of people in this region are resilient and are preparing, having just experienced Typhoon Mankut, Typhoon Sudalor, and Typhoon Yutu in the past decade. And all of those typhoons bring their own destruction and force winds. So people here are preparing and we will have to wait and see uh, what the storm will bring. Mm. I know there's lots of hopes and prayers that the storm will, will significantly veer left and miss Guam. Uh, as, as it stands right now, everyone is just preparing uh, for for those really strong winds coming our way and rain. Yes, yes. And you said the shelters have been opened. Are, are businesses still opened um, there, Thomas? Or are, things, are people really bunkering down? As of yesterday, they were. I know everyone is uh, starting to... Uh, close up shop and prepare. Uh, right now, the focus is on Guam and Rota. As you notice, Saipan and Tinian are under a tropical storm watch because mm-hmm. of uh, we're more north of in, in the region. But right now, Guam and Rota are definitely uh, in that full preparation mode in anticipation of Typhoon Malwar. Uh, and again, Guam and the uh, Guam and Rota uh, shelters across the Sinai, even on Saipan and Tinian. Are open uh, in, in the CNMI shelters have been open since 4 p.m. yesterday, and on Guam it opens at 8 8 a.m., which is in just a few 
just over an hour. And is it generally, as as we've seen with um, a lot of these typhoons, cyclones, um, is it mainly people in the in the coasts who live, I guess, closest to the um, to the coast that are using those shelters um, most? What areas are most at risk? Well, right now the shelters really span across each of the islands, so uh, it in. It's not just a matter of uh, geography, but also structural integrity of your own home. Mm. So we're, we'll see today. Today I'll be going to some of those shelters that were opened yesterday and talking those to those folks. So hopefully we'll get to share an update here on this program in the coming days. Yes, indeed. Um, if you are just joining in to Pacific Beat this Tuesday morning, we're speaking with the Chief Regional Correspondent at Quam News, Thomas Meng. Manglonia, uh, we're dis- discussing Typhoon Mawa, which, um, as you were dis- saying, um, expects to be Category 3 typhoon um, as it particularly hits uh, down on Guam, threatening other other parts of um, Micronesia as well. Um, are, are people using the shelters? I mean, you said you're, you're heading out later today. It's still early there um, where you are, uh, Thomas, in Saipan. Uh, are people quite worried about this um, impending typhoon heading their way? Yes, there is a bit of worry, uh, of, of course, given the previous super typhoon that just hit us in the past five years. And the shelters are also preparing for potential overflow. So we were at one shelter in, in the northern part of Saipan where they could take 120 people and they already have another location nearby ready for any uh, potential uh, overflow if uh, they receive more than 120 residents. So uh, there, there is uh, preparation uh, across the board in addition to uh, just getting your own personal homes uh, ready for the storm. And I, 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 as you mentioned, the Northern Marianas, it's in a sort of, uh, what, what did you call it, a state, a state of um, watch and see or, or warning. Um, but in Guam, it's a state of emergency. Is that right, Thomas? What implications yes. does that have? Uh, yes. And so, yes, uh, that just, you know, triggers different government responses. And so, yes, it is, uh, it can be a, a lot of information to track. But in the CNMI, Sapin and Tinian are under a tropical storm. Condition two, Rhoda is on a typhoon condition two, and right. Guam uh, is going to be moving into typhoon uh, condition one at one o'clock today. So, of course, all of those different statuses are triggering different responses. Uh, what that meant for us yesterday was shelter activation, uh, and uh, we're, we're going to continue to see uh, the governor of the Northern Marianas, Arnold Palacios, has said he's also reaching out to the Department of Defense, Joint Region Marianas to assist in a lot of the transportation of things like generators and other resources that need to make it down from Saipan to Rhoda. And of course, uh, we're going to await the response from the U.S. Congress and the U.S. President to the requests that our local leaders have made to them in terms of support. Mm. Uh, and are schools closed, do you know, particularly on Guam, where, where there is this um, yes. higher... Yes, okay. schools have, schools, public and private have been closed. Those notices went out early over the weekend. Uh, in anticipation, of course, a lot of those schools are shelters themselves. Mm. Well, there'll be a tense, tense few hours, tense day uh, as people prepare, I'm sure, there, Thomas. Um, I, I wanted to ask you one final question because it's May and usually it's the end of the season, particularly in the South Pacific when we, when we have cyclones. May is usually the time where we breathe a sigh of relief um, because the season has done. Is it similar there? Is it is it unlikely for a typhoon to form this part of the year, Thomas? Do you know? 
I'm, I'm hesitant to answer the question. I don't know the exact history or trends there, but I do know that uh, recently we've also been talking about another typhoon's anniversary, which is Typhoon Pamela, which hit Guam in May 20, May 21, 1976. So when this uh, typhoon was announced, a lot of people's memories went back to 1976, May 21st, when Typhoon Pamela uh, was a you know an extremely strong. Uh, typhoon that hit mm-hmm. Guam around this time in the 70s. And so uh, regardless of the time, people are thinking back to those experiences and wanting to be more prepared than ever. Yes, indeed. Um, yeah, when, as you said earlier, Thomas, people are resilient. Um, and let's hope they're making those preparations. And well, let's hope for a new miss, but always better to be um, safe than sorry. Um, thank you so much for your time and, and all the best as you as yourself prepare there in Saipan um, for the cyclone, oh, this typhoon, sorry, um, coming coming your way. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And that was Aquam News Chief Regional Correspondent Tomas Manglonia talking to us about that um, typhoon Mawa that is um, expected, um, as Tomas was saying, to um, go past the Northern Mariana Islands and also um, some islands there around that Northern Pacific region, particularly Guam, where there is a state of emergency. We expect that to um, sort of intensify later tonight um, with some of the strongest winds and storms expected yes later tonight and coming into Wednesday morning as well do stay tuned to this radio station for any updates there and of course we wish everyone um, there uh, in in the northern Pacific all the best and, and best preparations hope they're underway to prepare for this typhoon you're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia you are listening to Pacific Beat I'm Priyanka Srinivasan History was made and records were broken as Tongan Samoan singer Ian Tongi was crowned as this year's American Idol. The winner of American Idol 2023 is Ian Tongi! The 18-year-old quickly won hearts around the world after his emotional version of James Blunt's song Monsters, dedicated to his late father Rodney, and performed during the audition round of the reality TV show. Talia Olitia caught up with two of Ian's aunties shortly after he was crowned as the American Idol winner. Hi, I'm Verona, Ian's auntie. My husband is um, Ian's mom's little brother. And aloha, malalele. I'm Anao Kanongata'a. I'm Ian's auntie to um, his mom's older sister. You guys must be so excited. What was the reaction like when you heard that Ian had won American Idol? It was really emotional for me. I was in tears when when they announced it. Just thinking back uh, to Iam and from when he first started off on the ukulele, and it was just really overwhelming, especially with the support from people all over. So yeah, I was just so proud of him and so happy for him and what what's ahead for him. To me, there's no words to express how proud we are. You know, it's it's so emotional too, and. I kind of lost my voice because I was screaming like crazy. <laughs> At first, my heart was like pounding like crazy, you know, crossing our fingers, you know. But when they called his name, we were jumping and yelling and crying and everything. <laughs> you know, Ian has won so many hearts since that first audition, that emotional, heartfelt audition, um, you know, dedicated uh, to his late dad, Rodney. I don't think 
anyone can watch that without crying. It's the most viewed audition in American Idol history. And then during the finale, that performance with James Blunt as well, I was just sobbing. It was just so heartfelt. As his family, what has this journey been like for you to to watch him, you know, in, in and especially in those moments where he's honouring the memory of his dad? What's it been like for the family? Um, I think it's just been really exciting this whole journey, especially with his dad not being here. I I know that Ian just living his dream, he would be so proud of him, and we're also proud of him. And it's just it's just funny you you go places, and before people even ask if we're related to him, they're like, "Are you Tongan? Oh, do you know that guy?" Well, you know, it's it's just crazy. Everyone is just so happy for him, just so proud of him. Yeah, when he sung Monsters with James Blood and you saw him, you know, we were just all in tears. Like, you know, seeing him, you know, trying to fight back the tears, but still going on. I know he's still grieving and he's he's taken us and the whole world going through his grieving process with him, you know. And that's it is like, you know, when he sings, it's so heartfelt. It's you feel his soul, his whole heart. And, you know, you feel that grief. You think of the people that you've lost in your life as well. He has such an amazing gift. And of course, you know, America loves him. The Pacific love him as well. What has that support meant for you that, you know, everyone has gotten behind him just so much? It's just, uh, we're all so grateful. I'm so grateful for all the support that everybody has shown people that we don't even know, you know, just sending messages, man, I'm rooting for Ian from all, all parts of the world. We're just very grateful for all the support that's been shown. Yeah. Like there's support from everywhere. And I think, you know, him going through that and it's helping others. Like you said, you know, you think of, you know, people you've lost and, you know, he's got messages and just everyone, you, you're just seeing all social media, you know, just from Africa, from Norway, from, you know, Germany, all over the world. And he's just touching people's hearts. And like you said, he sings from the soul and you can just feel every everything that he sings. You know, when he sings, you, I kind of sometimes have to pinch myself and remind myself that he's only 18. Um, you know, what are your hopes for him and moving forward in his future? I hope he just never changes. And and really, he's always been the same Ian that we've always known. Like whenever we try to like joke around with him, like, oh, you're too popular now and stuff. You know, he's just like, no, no, come on, guys. You know, he's still the, the same humble kid, um, annoying at sometimes, but same kid that we always knew. Yeah. Like she said, he's 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 still yeah, nothing changed from the first day. He's just having fun. He's just, you know, sharing his gift with the world. And that's what he's always been doing, because before this, his mom would make him do, you know, Facebook lives. Just share your talent with the world. And we would be camping on there waiting <laughs> and we would just be listening to him, you know, and we were both like a couple of weeks ago in Hollywood. We wish we would have been there today, but um, we were in Hollywood and afterwards. You know, I come up and I go, Ian, okay, let's take a picture. Do I have to pay now? And he's like, (laughs) what? You know, and he's still the same humble kid. And that's what we were hoping for him. You know, this fame won't change him. And like you said, he's still 18 and he, he just loves to have fun, you know, and especially hang out with family and friends. We hope he still has fun and, and stays the same. 
what is Hawaii feeling like right now in, you know, in that, that he is one? Um, but do you feel that this party, this celebration is going to be going on for a while? Oh, we're only getting started. You should have seen our concert on Tuesday. It was packed, like 10 to 15,000 people attended. And that was within one week's notice of him coming home for a concert. The Just the overwhelming amount of support that we've received. Today, we had a watch party where we like were able to watch him live. And right after that, everybody was just blocking the roads, just parading down the roads, honking their horns in support of Iam, bringing out their banners, their Tongan flags, their Kohoku flags. And just it's just so exciting to see. It was so nice to see everybody. It was just so grateful for all the support. Yes, the Kahuku North Shore side has been crazy. <laughs> you know, they were going crazy, like two hours nonstop after they announced the winner. And I'm pretty sure, like Rona said, that's just the beginning. That was, and now, Kantonang Ta'a and Verona Tui Fu'a, two aunts of American Idol winner Iam Tongi, speaking there to our reporter, Talia Olitia. You're listening to Pacific Beat this Tuesday morning here on ABC Radio Australia. I'm your host, Priyanka Srinivasan. On screen, Pacific Islander representation is an issue near and dear to our next guest's heart. She's an actor, writer and producer with more than a dozen screen titles to her name. And Gemma Bird Matheson is about to add one more in the new season of ABC's The PM's Daughter. She joins us now in the studio. Good morning, Gemma. Welcome to Pacific Beat. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, now, you have been on the show once before, uh, chatting about Neighbours. Yes. Um, and then, you know, you were on the final season, I believe, before it went off air. Yes. And you chatted about representing yourself, a bit of yourself, mm. really, as a queer, Christian, South African, Papua New Guinean yep. woman. <laughs> Why is that sort of bringing yourself into these roles so important to you? Yeah, I mean, look, I've been acting for a while now and just started writing probably in the last, God, five years, I think. Uh And um, there's just so little representation um, Mm. of of people of colour generally, but uh, especially Pacifica people. Um, And so, yeah, being South African, being Papua New Guinean, like seeing uh, people from the African diaspora as well as people, you know, from the Pacifica diaspora on screen and behind the camera as well. It's just very important to me. Because it's taken a while. Like, yeah. I, I, you know, I remember growing up and you just wouldn't wouldn't see brown people no. that often on screen, I isn't think it? I can remember like three. That I remember watching Fuzzy when I was <laughs> <laughs> when I was a kid, um, watching video hits. I remember a girl on Blue Water High um, yes. who I think was, yeah, of some kind of African diaspora. Um, and uh, Silver Sun. Do you remember that show, Silver Sun? Oh, Set in space. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. <laughs> With uh, Cleopatra Coleman, um, also like African diaspora. Like, I can remember them. Yeah. I remember the people on screen being like, oh, they look like me. But it's so few and far between. So I think having that representation and, you know, even look with Neighbours as well, like when that was airing, I had a number of people from Papua New Guinea messaging me being like, I'm queer, I live here. Um, it's hard for me. Like having that representation on screen is really has been really important and thank you. Um, and that's just like, that's what that's why we do it, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing because you can sort of bring forward, I mean, hopefully sort of young young kids looking up to you on screen. Yeah. You know, you're part of adding to them. They, they can count you now. Yeah. As, yeah. as you know, I followed yeah. Gemma Matheson-Bird and I saw her. Or Gemma yeah. Matheson, sorry. Um, and Gemma, you're now, I guess, continuing that representation mm. now to another show. 
the PM's daughter. Can you tell us a bit about this? Does it, do you also do you also have the opportunity to bring a bit of your experience to that role as well? Yeah. So this this shows. I mean, I love this show so much. We're now um, the season two is about to premiere on June the fifteenth on Monday. Um, but yeah, I was involved from season one. I actually started off in the writer's room. Um, ah. And as we were developing characters, you know, this character of a vet came, came about and I was like, can I, can I audition for this? And they were like, you yeah, had to right. ask if you're writing it. You can just put yeah. yourself in. <laughs> well, it was quite funny because when the audition scenes came through, they were from my episode. <laughs> um, and I had specifically written this pink, like, boiler suit for this character, which I owned. <laughs> and so I had I the boiler suit on and I was like, I just happened to own this. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, I got started out in the writers' room, and then they cast me as this role, um, and yeah, now we're going into season two. So is that difficult? Because I thought it happened the other way around, Gemma. I thought you started as an actor, and then then you know you decided to try your foot at, at writing. But this happened the yeah. other way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is what happened. I started as an actor, couldn't get many roles, so I started writing. Um, but with this particular project, I yeah was a writer <laughs> first, and was like, put me in. <laughs> I can do this role. Is that difficult? Because I imagine when you write, you know, you, mm. you, you're writing these other characters, you're writing for their voice as mm-hmm, well. Mm-hmm. And then to start thinking about putting yourself into them, is, is, it, is it sort of like a weird experience? Like you're, you're playing with something that you've created already and inserting yourself in there? Um, oh, I don't know. I feel like when I'm writing, I'm kind of imagining myself as all these different uh, characters anyway. Yeah. You know, I'm like, if I was a 15-year-old girl, <laughs> <laughs> like my mum's just become prime minister, like what's the voice I'm giving her? So yeah, I feel like I put myself in those shoes like to begin with. So yeah, then then stepping into that character, I look, maybe I'd already pictured myself as a vet the whole time. <laughs> Sounds like you did, <laughs> I yes. was ready to get that role. <laughs> yes, yes. I, w- I wonder if you're the one uh, sort of whispering the other the other actor's lines <laughs> yeah. like, yeah. during those yes. scenes. Yeah, like Hermione and Harry Potter. I don't know if you watched the first like few movies, you can just see um, Emma Watson M- just mouthing. mouthing. <laughs> you're <That's> that. <laughs> um, so tell us about Yvette. Who is this um, character who you play? Yeah, so Yvette starts out in season one as someone who's working at the lodge. Um, she works for the Prime Minister. She's kind of tasked with uh, driving Cat around, doing like looking after her, basically. Um, and if you haven't seen season one, spoiler, by the <laughs> end, of, end of season one, you realise that Yvette actually isn't just Lodge staff. She is an ASIO plant um, set there to, to look after the, the Lodge, look after the Prime Minister. She's, she's security. Mm-hmm. Um, so season two, we you know, start off with Yvette being head of security at the Lodge, just running around after Cat, basically. <laughs> <laughs> wow, so it's a pretty... Uh, it's it's quite a different role from what mm. people may have seen your neighbours, isn't it? Yeah, look, I, I look, I get to wear a lot of suits. Um, I got a lot of sunglasses, a lot of headsets. <laughs> Dealing with the security. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah, right. And have you been able to? I mean, I guess neighbours. The character there was so similar to your your mm. experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, a Christian queer Papua New Guinean was also used, you know, um, yeah. in in the script and in the character as well. Um, have you been able to sort of put your your touch, particularly because you're right for the show as well? Mm put some of your experiences into Yvette's story arc as well? Yeah, there was a, there was a moment in season one, actually, um, where my character's going on a date and it was the smallest little thing, but I, you know, the pronouns of the person I was going on a date with was she, her. Like, it was, <laughs> it was a woman. Um, very small moment, like, you know, it wasn't talked about, but it was just this, like, little subtle nod to Yvette being queer. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so, like, like, little things like that, yes. And isn't it nice, I mean, you know, we were talking about media representation before, mm. I wonder, how do you feel? Because there's one side of media representation where you're really flying the flag. You're mm. really saying, you know, this is this is me 
you know, I'm South African, Papua New Guinean, all my characters are going to have that identity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then there's the other approach where it's, it sounds like this, this one where it's more subtle, you know, mm-hmm. it's just part of, part of your character. It's not, it's not the main focus yeah. of their, of their story arc or anything. Um, you know, do you grapple with balancing that out, particularly as a writer? Um, mm. You know, what, what do you prefer? Do you prefer these things sort of simmering behind you as an actor or do you want them to be sort of out and loud and, yeah, really flying the flag or a bit of both perhaps? Yeah, I, I, think, there's, um, I think there's the importance of having both, mm. right? Because sometimes, sometimes I'll do a project and I'm like, I don't want to have to talk about, you know, I don't have yeah. to like, I don't want to have to be the face of this all the time. Like I don't want to have to always be the face of of being PNG, of being South African, of being queer, of being a Christian. Yes, like yeah. sometimes I just yeah, sometimes <laughs> I'm like I just want to exist. So yeah. I think there's so much yeah, importance to roles that are just seeing people from any kind of like, you know, marginalized groups, any kind of like diverse groups just existing. Um yeah. As well as having the moments where you actually get to talk about it and it's it's front front face. Like, I think there's kind of, yeah, importance to both of it. Yeah, yeah. I think we're seeing a shift with the media, particularly mm. having more of those stories where it's just existing, you yeah. know, and it's not yeah. the, the highlight, but it just happens to be part of that character, yeah. and, which is refresh, refreshing at least to someone who's, a, who's watching all this happen, yeah. um, which is which is quite fun. Um, now, you wrote episode eight. I mean, you've been writing the whole, you know, before this as well, but you particularly mm. wrote episode eight. Yes. of the season. Yeah. Um, can you give us any hints? What that? What was that process like? And any, oh, anything? it's so much fun. Yeah. I mean, I love this show. I love the team on this show. Um, it's it's such a like being able to write a comedy drama for, for teens where you know Kat's going through all the things that a fifteen year old is going through, yeah. crushes like dealing with her parents, figuring out what she wants to do, but then you marry that with like her being privy to politics and like uh, dealing with AI in this season. Um, and conspiracies about her mum and you know, all the pressures that come with being the Prime Minister's daughter. Mm. So it's it's just a really fun tone to play with. Um, did you do much research? Did you, did you speak to other Prime Minister's, you know, um, children? Yeah, play? yeah. We really? had a number of interviews throughout the, the uh, writer's room, a lot of documents that we, like, read over. Like, yeah, they, we all did our research for yeah. sure. Because um, I don't know if you've been following Papua New Guinea politics, but mm. there's been a bit, bit of scrutiny on, on the, the families of, of mm. um, ministers and um, what role they have and if they yeah. should be, you know, part of, part of politics, part of parties going on. So there's a lot of lot to play with, I'm sure, from those documents yeah. that you've gone through. Definitely. And and it's it's really cool to be tackling that from you know the target audience for this show is is like nine to twelve year olds yeah um, and having a conversation about politics and like the importance of like you know season one we talked about climate change and like what what kids' roles are in that and I think like having a space where young people are able to have a say in in, in politics and like have those conversations and not be silenced I think is. Um, really important. Totally. Yeah. Well, Gemma, thank you for opening those conversations, coming here to chat to you about this latest um, project of yours, PM's Daughter, writer and actor on it. Um, thank you so much for joining us on Pacific Beat. Great. Thank you for having me. <laughs> that was uh, Gemma um, uh, Bird Matheson talking to us about the new season of ABC's The PM's Daughter. I imagine people can find it on iView or, or um, on the Australia um, network TV, uh, wherever you can find uh, our ABC. ABC shows, you can check it out there.
And with that, that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat, recapping today's show. We heard which areas are currently in the firing line of tropical typhoon Mawa, which is bearing down on the region. In the northern Marianas, Saipan and Tinian are under a tropical storm condition too. For the island of Rota, which is where most of the government in the northern Marianas is focusing on because it is more to the south, closer to Guam, it's under typhoon condition too. You can uh, hear any updates about that typhoon, a typhoon that's uh, in the northern Pacific by tuning in to ABC Radio Australia right here. That's the end of the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. I hope you have a lovely day. I'll be back same time, same place tomorrow morning.